it's super scary because in Web3, you're only two or three clicks away from getting your entire wallet drained. So that's why these guardrails are needed. But to continue elaborating on what happened, um, so let's say he had open approvals to multiple collections. Let's say World of Women, let's say uh, Moonbirds, let's say um, Mutant Apes, right? So all of these could theoretically be stolen in one go. Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Today, I've got a great guest. His name is Om Shaw, and he is the co-founder of WalletGuard which is um, a browser extension that is fighting the good fight to keep all you DGENs safe when you go on a malicious website that might want to uh, connect to your wallet and then drain everything you've got before you know what happened. The way they're doing that is they've got some really cool machine learning tools and other kind of secret sauce that um, can warn you about a website that might have an evil wallet feature before it's too late. They've also got a feature in WalletGuard that allows you to see what your transaction is going to, it's going to affect in a sense. So it'll show you if I sign this transaction, I'm going to get zero ETH and all of my NFTs are going to go away. So it's a big red flag and should be a really handy warning so that people don't get scammed. We also talk a lot about just general security stuff. I kind of nerd out on this because I think it's fascinating. We talked about the Lazarus Group, which is the North Korean-backed basically hacking group that is funding North Korea's development of nuclear weapons through hacking and all sorts of nefarious shit. We talked about lax multi-sig wallet practices uh, where things can get a little uh, silly if you're not doing it right. And we talk about what happened to Kevin Rose, who you guys might know about. Uh, he had millions of dollars worth of NFTs stolen. In a similar case, to, as I described, if he had had WalletGuard, it, it might have helped save him from clicking, you know, sign on a transaction before uh, he uh, had fully seen what the transaction was going to do. So uh, we get all into that. We talk about uh, Ohm's time at Kent State University where he sniffed network traffic. And that is uh, his own words there. And um, we talk a lot about a lot of other great stuff. So let's get to the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks a lot. Hey, Om, how you doing? Welcome to Decent People. Hi, thanks for having me. Doing extremely well. How about yourself? Yeah, not bad. Well, we're recording on a Friday. It's a beautiful day here in LA. And uh, to be honest, once I do this, I'm going out and uh, going to go mess around a little bit. So <laughs> going to get the <laughs> weekend like started a little early. Yep, yeah, so, um, yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know where you are, but are you? Uh, are, I saw in some things that you're in Austin, Texas. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, the entire team and I, um, we, we live in a startup house out here in Austin, Texas. So um, yeah, we just moved here a month and a half ago, so I've been loving it so far. The weather's great. Apparently, it's about to uh, get extremely hot over the summer, so it's going to be our first summer here, so that'll be fun, I guess. Yeah, I guess that, yeah, that'll be something. Um, and that's nice that uh, consensus is coming right to you now these year, these days. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's very nice. I mean, one of the biggest reasons that we moved down here was uh, Martin, who's the other co-founder, we, we actually were at consensus last year and we just fell in love with austin while we were down here 
And it turns out there's a lot of like local events happening, like ATX, DAO, um, you know, Wranglers. There's a whole bunch of different like local meetup groups, um, which just made Austin one of the prime prime spots for us. And knowing that there's a lot of Web3 involvement down here, uh, you know, definitely feels like we have a sense of community here. Yeah. And I'm sure your breakfast taco game is getting uh, really good. Oh, yeah. We actually have a spot that's like two minute drive from us, which is really good. Um, so <laughs> it works out really nice. Nice. Yeah. All right. So um, the company that you co-founded that you mentioned is WalletGuard. And you guys are a browser extension, basically, to help folks in crypto not get ripped off. I think is a sort of succinct way of putting it. But let me let me ask you to describe it, what WalletGuard is and where the impetus came from from you and your co-founders to sort of um, to, to take this leap and, and create the startup. Yeah, absolutely. So just to kind of kick it off with what is WalletGuard, WalletGuard is building end user security tooling designed to uh, empower the individual. Um, one of the main reasons we did this is because self-custody has become such an alarm for a lot of folks, um, especially with the collapse of FTX and the collapse of a lot of banks in the financial industry. Uh, people are very interested by the idea of self-custody, but one of the biggest cons to self-custody is that often the security responsibility shifts to the individual now. And yeah. in Web3, where transactions are final, uh, people need that additional security layer to keep them protected and stay safe. Back in Web2, you know, you could rely on your banks to call them up and tell them that there was fraud or something like that that occurred uh, so that they can go ahead and try and reverse the transaction. Unfortunately, that's not the case in Web3, but also fortunately at the same time that you do have the ownership of your own digital assets. Yeah, and it's not just like one bad um, wallet signature, but you know, I know you guys, I don't think you're into this area, but, you know, typing a, a, an address like one character wrong, that's that's a mistake that you're not going to get back. And there's the UX is uh, the user experience is, is again, really tricky still. Um, and, and all of crypto is one thing that uh, I've been harping on for a while. And I hope that people are really working on such as yourselves to like help improve it and just make it so that people aren't absolutely terrified of <laughs> hitting send, you know. That's really cool that you guys are, are doing this and it's absolutely necessary. Um, one thing I love is um, I love, I kind of geek out on this stuff and I like talking to security folks, whether they're doing like blockchain forensics or what you guys are doing, because I feel like it, it's a window into this like shady kind of part of, of the web and of crypto. And so I thought it'd be fun if you could share like what's one of the worst um, security breaches or lapses that you've seen in crypto and like maybe just we'll set the scene for for folks and and sort of set the scale of like what what we're talking about here yeah yeah absolutely so back when the harmony bridge attack happened that was a really really interesting situation mainly because like can you just give you a little at, background on like what the harmony bridge is and what what they were doing there yeah, so it was just a bridging protocol, like you could bridge assets. And what had happened was they had a Gnosis safe, which for folks that aren't familiar with Gnosis safe, it's essentially a multi-signature wallet. So requiring multiple signers to sign off on one transaction in order for, for it to execute. Um, a common way people think of it is like a 2FA for, um, you know, uh, Web3 transactions, um, if you will. And what was really interesting about this situation was, first off, they were attacked by uh, North Korean APT, Advanced Persistent Threat, which is the Lazarus Group. 
Um, Lazarus Group is very famous for the WannaCry ransomware, the uh, PlayStation Network DDoS attack. Um, they've done several things in the past, uh, crippling a lot of different nations' infrastructures. But they've also made a big leap into Web three. Yeah, they've been uh, they've been fingered by the U.S. government for potentially funding the North Korean nuclear arms program. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yep. Yeah, yep, they're yep, a, yep. a national threat according to um, a lot of the digital kind of cyber task forces out there in the government. 100%. They are 100% a um, APT, an advanced persistent threat, uh, very much North Korean. Um, and the <clears throat> the whole thing with the Harmony Bridge, um, the attack on the Harmony Bridge was they had a multi-sig that was um, out of five. So like you could have up to five signers required to authorize a transaction. Um, but with the way that multi-sigs are set up is it's very customizable. Like I can give it the amount of threshold that I want for a transaction to execute. And in their case, they only required two out of five signatures in order to execute a transaction, which is super low. At least three, right? You would think. Yeah. You would think, you would think at least three. And if you're safeguarding hundreds of million dollars of assets, you would think maybe even four, right? You would think that they would enforce like a higher strict uh, security protocol, or at least you would expect something like that. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. These users were fished. And phishing, uh, just to kind of shine some light on it, 98% of attacks, uh, hacks, exploits, anything, they all start with some form of phishing. And that's a 98% threshold. Like, there's a very low percentage chance that someone is going to find an exploit into your system and not require any manual intervention from an individual. Um, a common saying in InfoSec is that the weakest link in any information security system is the individual using it. So what had happened was they maliciously crafted fake job um, job applications and were phishing these uh, employees and got them to open documents that were binded to like malicious exploits um, that allowed them to compromise the uh, user's computer and obtain the private keys that were required in order to authorize the multi-sig to transfer assets out. Um, so it was a pretty alarming um, concern, you know. Um, one, you know, the people shouldn't be opening files on their local machines. There's a lot of, there's several factors that went wrong here. Um, so like something I always like to recommend folks is that if you're going to be opening any files, um, try to use a cloud-based platform to open them, right? Like Google Docs is one way to view files within Google's environment rather than downloading it locally on your machine. Um, so that's always kind of a recommendation I make. So try to leverage like these cloud providers and these cloud services in order to open documents in their environment rather than on your own local machine. And if you are, you know, someone that is a target to get a lot of different like uh, documents sent to you, for example, if you're a VC or if you're um, something else, like you're, you might expect a lot of pitch decks or stuff like that, but you shouldn't be opening them on your local machine, the same machine that you do your crypto or your operate your company off of. That's not good OPSEC. And um, that's something that a lot of companies in Web3 need to take a look at is like, what is my OPSEC? Where am I vulnerable? Do I have a single point of failure? These are all really important concepts to understand. Yeah, no, that's great advice. Um, so that's also um, sounds like a very sophisticated attack. I, I, I probably would never think that uh, opening a document or something could you know lead to that. But then I need to listen to people like you uh, more. Um, is there a, a counterexample like where somebody did something not stupid, but just like something where you just are like kind of slapping your forehead and saying, oh, I can't believe you've done that? Uh, so there's like two things um, that come to mind. I think the most obvious example was with NFT God. Um, so 
it, it kind of sucks because this is like um, not the greatest situation for him to be in because what happened was he was on his browser and he was looking for OBS. So I'm sure a lot of streamers or people that game or record, you know, record anything are familiar with open broadcast software, very popular software. So he searched up OBS download. And the first thing he clicked on was a sponsored ad link by Google, which ended up being a malicious ad. So this is a thing that people often don't realize, which is pretty alarming, that Google, like, they do some kind of vetting of ads, but not really. So, like, I could easily go and get a, a malicious link or a spam or something, you know, promoted as a Google ad that can appear above the actual link of the product. So yeah, sure. in this case, it, it appeared above the OBS download link, and he clicked on it, downloaded it. Next thing you know, he had malware on his computer, and it ended up compromising his account, compromising a lot more than that. And it's a terrifying situation, but it's kind of like a, one of those things that can be avoided so simply by using browsers like Brave, which has built-in ad blockers, or second, using ad blockers like Adblock Plus, uh, uBlock Origin. These are free to use, and by just using a simple tool like that, you will avoid like these these different types of advertisements. Um, a lot of people call them, it's like termed malvertisements, um, so kind of like a mix on the word between malware and advertisement. But So that'll actually get, those will get rid of the sponsored ads on Google searches? Yeah, yeah, well? yeah, yeah, it'll get rid of the sponsored ads. I and, didn't know yeah, that. It's, yeah, definitely worth checking out. Nice, okay. Um, and yeah, like another thing you, you sort of touched on, um, recently I saw you quoted in a few stories about a hack um, that came when a Twitter account, a verified Twitter account was hacked and taken over and they put out a link and said, hey, um, click on this link and, you know, like to, to get some reward or something. And the link was then, it, it's called a wallet drainer, right? Where it, it goes in and, and if you've got a wallet connected to that browser, it can access that wallet and just wipe it clean like instantaneously. Is, do I have that right? Um, so there's a little bit more involved to it. Um, and this is, again, coming back to the social engineering and the phishing side of things. So the link itself, like you click on the link, it's obviously, well, maybe it's not obvious to a lot of folks, but it's a phishing site, right? So you click on the link. Next thing you know, you're prompted to connect. Like, let's say um, it's an Arbitrum airdrop scam, right? So you go to this website. And you obviously, the first assumption that you make is that you're on a legitimate site, which is already a very dangerous assumption to make, right? In my yeah, opinion- the thing here sure. is that I would have, I would have like, if it's a verified Twitter account and stuff, you know, I'm probably, my guard is down already, right? That's right, 100%. Scary. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, something that I always stress to people is that- it's good to be paranoid in Web3. Don't trust it. Like, trust, but don't verify. Or, sorry, verify. Or, shoot, I'm missing the the analogy. But the whole idea is it's that trust, but, trust verify, but don't verify. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like, you need to verify everything you do. Um, and you have, always have to, like, double check all of these things. Like, it's good to be paranoid, mainly because you never know if something's true or not, right? And in this case of, like, an Arbitrum airdrop or something like that, you go to their website and they you click the connect button. Um, once you connect your wallet, now they're going to enumerate your wallet and check, you know, what open approvals do you have? Do you have a lot of ETH in your wallet? What can I get the most value out of by scamming? And this is all happening programmatically. 
then they're going to prompt you with a signature for your MetaMask. So the wallet drainers don't just work instantaneously by going to the website, right? They work by when you interact and you sign a malicious signature. And that's like the issue. The second issue that I wanted to flag is that people sign things that they're not necessarily understanding. Um, and like, I know Kevin Rose, it's probably a great example that we can dive into a little bit. Um, but you know, in the case of like two mistakes are typically made when you are getting your wallet drain. First, you're assuming you're on the correct website. Second, you're assuming the signature you're signing is safe, even though you don't understand it. And, you know, that's a mentality that people are kind of trained on from Web2. Like everybody clicks, I accept to terms of services. I accept to privacy policies. I accept to anything, right? And that's a that's a mentality that we're trained on in Web2, but that doesn't translate I mean, to be well. uh, To be fair to people, you don't have a choice, right? Because you don't get to go forward if you don't accept the terms. So Very it's kind true. Of a, Very true. Yeah, it's kind of, you're, you're kind of in a tough spot there. But yeah, your point is well taken, that it's already been ingrained in us. But in Web3, it's not. Like you're, you're, a lot of times you're the one who is um, making the choice to go forward by signing a transaction. Right, 100%. And a lot of that's that's kind of going back to my point earlier about a lot of the responsibility shifts, right? In Web 2, like you can rely on your bank to have security infrastructure, security rails, and stuff like that to safeguard your assets. In Web 3, where digital ownership and provenance is a thing, you don't necessarily have those guardrails in place, especially when you're self-custody. Yeah. So... A centralized exchange might have some good safeguards, right? But then you might have experiences like FTX. But then yeah. alternatively, if you self-custody, you might expose yourself to scams because the question is, do you trust this exchange to protect your assets more or do you trust yourself to protect these assets more? And the whole idea behind WalletGuard is kind of empowering the individual to give them the confidence to protect their own assets. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us who Kevin Rose is and tell, tell us what happened with him. Yeah, absolutely. So Kevin Rose is the founder of Proof Labs. Um, so the Moonbirds collection, um, he's very notable in the space, has been around for quite some time. And with all his experience in Web3, um, you would think that he has like the best OPSEC possible. But in the case of what happened, so first Kevin was looking for a Punk 6529 meme cards mint um, or a claim or something along those lines. He ended up on the wrong website. Once he ended up on the wrong website, the next thing he did was he connected his wallet. Um, and once he connected his wallet, what they were able to do is they're like, okay, I can see. So this specific attack I'm talking about is like called a seaport drainer. Um, so it leverages OpenSea approval. So I'll explain a little bit more about how that works. So once he connects his wallet, they know his Ethereum address and they're able to go and search all his open approvals on OpenSea. So whenever you're listing an asset on OpenSea, you have to set approval to that asset so the smart contract can manage that asset and complete a sale or a transfer or whatever you're trying to do. Um, so you're going to have an active approval. So the way it works, like let's say Moonbirds, for example. So Kevin Rose sets uh, approval for his Moonbirds because maybe he's listed one in the past or something along those lines. Now you have an active approval on OpenSea that this attacker knows about. So what this attacker does is crafts a signature that creates a OpenSea private sale to themselves for zero ETH, leveraging all those open active approvals. So let's say all the Moonbirds, let's say he had five Moonbirds, right? 
And let's say he had a couple. What, what were these worth? Like these are these are really valuable NFTs if people aren't familiar with them or, or you know relatively yeah. valuable. But do you, do you remember like what they were like roughly worth at this point? I think it was either one point two million or two point one million that he got drained for. Oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's super scary because in Web three you're only two or three clicks away from getting your entire wallet drained. So that's why these guardrails are needed. But to continue elaborating on what happened, um, so let's say he had open approvals to multiple collections. Let's say World of Women. Let's say uh, Moonbirds. Let's say um, Mutant Apes. Right. So all of these could theoretically be stolen in one go because he has open approvals already for them for a private sale. So the attacker crafts this signature that's able to leverage all these open approvals and is able to take them all in one go. Um, and it's a gasless like signature. It's it's super it's super crazy. Um, so actually, it might not be gasless. I, I'd have to double check that. So apologies on that. But regardless, um, it's all in one go. That it's just a very, well, they make it very easy for you to give them all of your stuff, basically. Or like, exactly. Allow exactly. them to steal everything you have in your wallet or, or whatever. Exactly. Yep. And they send sell it to themselves for zero ETH. So it's like they're not even getting anything in return, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's the craziest part of it all. So how would WalletGuard have helped him? Would it have helped him or walk me through that part? Yeah. So what WalletGuard does is we provide multi-layered defense. So one, we do proactive phishing detection as well as transaction simulation. So the first way that we would have helped them is ident we already so when the entire thing happened we actually replied underneath the tweet going to the same website he went to and we already blocked it proactively with all the different heuristics that we're looking at at WalletGuard. Um, so we were able to identify that this was a scam uh, phishing website. And now even if he had gone and proceeded on that website, even though he saw the phishing warning, then he would have been prompted with the transaction simulation. The transaction simulation would have told him exactly what's going in his wallet and out of his wallet. So in this case, it would have told you the fiat value of how much, like all the assets would have listed them out one by one, that it's all going out and he's receiving nothing in return. And that would have been like a big red flag. We would have also provided you a big warning on the transaction simulation saying that this is an OpenSea signature that's not being utilized by a marketplace or a marketplace aggregator, which is a big red flag. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Um, congrats on that. And so when I said I'd like to geek out on this, is the thing that makes me want to know more is how do you guys know, and I don't know if this is your secret sauce and you can't talk about it, but I'd love any kind of like behind the scenes on, how do you guys figure out, you said the heuristics of like, you know, a bad website, a phishing site, like how can you figure that out like as somebody is interacting with that site or wants to interact with it in real time? Yeah, it can definitely be complex. Um, so I can, I'll, I'll try to break it down in some, some regards, some of the heuristics. So like, for example, we're looking at like DNS records. So looking at how recently the website was created, how long is it registered for? Um, we're looking at different things like the metadata of the website, looking at like static code on the website. Um, then we're also taking into account um, other factors like you know, how similar is this to another domain? Um, are they trying to typo squat someone? Are they um, using puny code, which is like, you know, different accented characters that resolve differently? Um, Did you say typo squat? Yeah, typo squatting. Okay, okay what you got to tell me more about that. What is typo squatting someone? 
Yeah, so there's two terms for it. Like typo squatting is like an easier term to understand. So it's either typo squatting or fuzzing um, or fuzzy logic is what people call it. Um, but it's basically like uh, imagine going to OpenSea.io versus uh, zero, um, like OpenSea with a zero at the front. That that would be like typo squatting or even like an extra, um, you know, uh, A at the end of OpenSea. That's how people get you to go to a fake website. They make it look exactly like what it should be, but just a little bit off. 100%. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Got it. That's cool. So what's actually really cool is that we just released a feature last week called, uh, or two weeks ago called Storm Watcher. So Storm Watcher is now able to detect if there's a wallet drainer on a website before you even connect your wallet or anything. So in addition to our phishing detection, now it's able to detect wallet drainers that are already present on a website before you even connect, before you even simulate a transaction. We're basically taking security a whole level above, you know, a lot of other people on the market. Um, and yeah. yeah, yeah, it's super cool. And we're looking at like structural and behavioral patterns of websites doing utilizing AI to basically help like identify these th different types of threat at scale, um, finding patterns and all, all that type of stuff. So it's very, very cool stuff. Um, and you know, it's very new for us. So we're super excited about it and we're just, we've been iterating on it, making it better, fine tuning. Um, so super exciting launch for us. That's great. Let's go back a little bit and like dive into your history. Um, I'm, I'm sure when you were a kid, you didn't think you'd be talking about this on a podcast right now, uh, in several years. What, what, um, where did you grow up and what, what were you like as a kid and where, where did you think you like did you have a career path in mind when you were young or like can you just tell me about that a little bit yeah, yeah absolutely um so i'm from cleveland um cleveland ohio and yeah i mean ever since i was like 15 um funny enough it all my security passion started with playing minecraft as funny as it sounds um <laughs> there was like I, I can tell you the whole story it's pretty funny um but basically yeah, I've been passionate about security since I was 15. Um, well, uh, yeah, tell me the Minecraft story. I want to hear this. Okay, okay. So it's pretty funny. Um, so I'm playing Minecraft. This dude wants to get to my base. He's like, hey, um, let me in your base or I'll shut off your internet. And I'm like, no, you won't. And he shuts off my internet. And funny yeah. enough, the way that this happens is through, um, back in the day, there used to be Skype API re resolvers. So like you could take a Skype username and get someone's public IP address through that Skype username. And what they would do is use like a stress testing service or um, what they commonly go as called booters um, on, on like the internet. Um, and they would use this booter um, to essentially knock off your internet for a set period of time. And it would basically be sending a lot of packets and just overwhelming it. So, you know, my passion for security kind of spewed from this moment because I was already a little bit more tech savvy at the time. But, you know, I wasn't like sure about security. I wasn't sure about any of my career paths at that time. But I was just tech savvy and I knew I liked computers. And Did this guy want to get into your Minecraft base to like steal all your diamonds and your. Yeah, man, uh, he was trying to take my emeralds. loot. <laughs> he was trying <laughs> yeah. to take my loot. And essentially uh he he got my public ip address started ddosing me so like my internet was offline so i went on my phone and i googled like how do i switch my ip address and then i learned about like what dynamic versus like static ips were um and then i learned that i could literally just unplug my router for like 10 minutes and it would give me a new ip address so i did that um unplugged it for 10 minutes got a new ip address went back online and i was just like wow that wasn't cool man <laughs> and um that's where it kind of all like spawned from like that's where i learned about a lot of security stuff and that's when i got super in depth with like learning about security or at least knowing that i wanted to learn about security 
Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the golden rule of tech help, isn't it? It's like, did you unplug it and plug it back in? <laughs> yeah, uh, it really is the golden rule. Really They're the golden rule. Yeah. 90% of problems get fixed that way. Uh, it seems to me, but uh, were your parents into tech or what were they doing uh, in Cleveland while you were growing up? Yeah. My dad was in banking. My mom was also in banking. Okay. And uh, did you grow up with brothers and sisters? Yeah, I had one sister. Um, okay. So my sister and I, um, yeah, we're real close. But yeah, she does like marketing and stuff like that. Um, uh, but yeah, my my dad was also like when when I was younger, he would be more like techy, but like not like he wasn't like super technical by any means. But he just was fascinated by tech and liked tech. Mm. Um, cool. So like I got exposed to a lot of cool stuff like tech wise when I was younger, and I was just like, wow, like this is definitely the field I want to be in. And do they, um, does your family now come to you and ask you about, you know, crypto and what they should be buying or selling and all that? Yeah, of course. But I'm also like, you know, the go-to tech help now um, for my family. Yeah, of course. So. Of course. Uh, all right. So based on the family asking you questions about what they should buy, what part of the cycle are we in right now? Ooh, not financial advice, of course. Um, no. But I would say that we're like, towards like the, i want to say like the three-fourths of the way through the bear cycle maybe the middle of the bear cycle is probably the right area to put fingerprint it um based on like trends from like previous cycles like given by the way i was also around crypto since like first exposed to it back in like 2014 um but 2017 is when i really dove into crypto and learned about it but 2014 was i was just like the first time i heard about bitcoin and like learned like how to use a bitcoin wallet or something like that but yeah um 2017 is when i really dove into the space um but yeah to just further address your question yeah it was um it was interesting i mean like with the current cycle um like i would imagine that we're probably midway or three-fourths of the way through the bear market yeah that's what i would say but I really see like one of the main keys of adoption or like what's going to bring us out of the bear cycle is like a real AAA game that gets mainstream adoption. I really think blockchain gaming is really going to be the facet that really brings people into Web3. And the reason I say this is because you take a look at the way that Reddit was able to onboard people. They were able to do it in a way that people didn't even understand they were being onboarded into Web3. So gaming also poses a particular fashion where you could do something similar where people don't even understand that they're interacting with like web3 elements like you look at the steam marketplace you look at games like csgo and some of those other games like they have a whole marketplace already built around them why aren't they just digital assets that you have provenance and ownership over yeah i i totally agree um we've been writing about some gaming stuff on chain and um there's this one uh horizon blockchain games is out of hong kong and they're they are kind of like giving their users a menu. Like, do you want to, you know, do you want to connect your wallet or do you want to like not even know about that yet? And then, you know, so that they can get them into the game. And then later they'll be like, oh, you know, the skins that you have or this weapon, you know, you can make that into an NFT that you can buy and then take with you and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's, I think that's a good approach because shoving people into the, you know, process of, of having to make a wallet and do all that is, is I think can turn a lot of people off. Yeah, 100% agree. I definitely think gaming is one of the biggest facets. Um, I mean, I know people say NFTs are dead. I don't think they're dead. I think there's actually a lot of community around the things. Um, and I know community has become a taboo word, but I think the fact that a lot of people get onboarded through like YouTube or now even NFT communities is very bullish for us because 
it builds that culture aspect of Web3 that was lacking previously before it was just like a bunch of crypto bros trying to get rich, right? But now there's like all this different community aspect. I'm sure that the get rich mentality is still definitely very much around. But the whole idea of the culture aspect being introduced, you know, like once your bags are down, you suddenly love the art, right? So um, it's very, it's a, it's a particular, it's very peculiar. But um, I, I do love the whole community aspect and meeting people that I never knew about before and like being able to go to all these crypto meetups and meet all these people that I've been talking online with forever. So yeah, I think it adds a whole level of community that, you know, we didn't have before. Yeah, for sure. So after you um, had that Minecraft experience and sort of that, like piqued your interest, like wh what did you do with it? Like how did you parlay that into something um, like getting towards college or whatnot? There's a really, really cool website called Hack the Box. Um, and there's another one called Try Hack Me. And these websites basically let you spin up virtual environments to start like pen testing and uh, attacking these environments and trying to break in and find vulnerabilities and exploit those vulnerabilities so th that was kind of like where i started like learning from um but before it just started with like researching like learning about different things about security but then i just came like really like my interest was peaked you know like when that when that person was able to like shut off my internet it really just piqued my interest and like wow like what is like what else could people do you know were you thinking of black hat stuff or was that like were you just in intrigued in it or were you kind of like i want to go i want to go turn off somebody's internet <laughs> <laughs> no not necessarily right uh, i mean i was definitely um like i was like probably like a t i was like a young teenager at the time and so like i was definitely like you know interested in trying to do something like that didn't do it but um i i was more interested in like learning about the whole field because like once that piqued my interest i was very much um I, I knew that i wanted to go into security and i always thought like hacking and stuff like that was like super cool because it was like oh man you have to be super technical and like all this stuff and you would see stuff in movies and like you know i was like wow i want to i want to know how to do that type of stuff like we're in a digital age um yeah. so i i wanted to know how to do that and that piqued my interest and like that's when i started learning like through like hack the box try hack me there's a whole variety of tools like i'm happy to list a ton of things that i learned with um, but then um, I went to college. Um, I studied computer science um, with the focus in information security. Um, so, like, I know how to develop, but I'm just not a big fan of development. I burn out easy from development. Um, so that's why my team is so much better than me at development. So they just handle all the development side. I kind of now just handle all the business and marketing side, which is kind of a funny transition, which we'll get into. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, I studied computer science with a, a minor or sorry, with a focus in information security and a minor in business. It sounds like you kind of were, well, was part of it interesting to you that it's like, I want to kind of go get the bad guys. Like I want to sort of like catch yeah, these folks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to be on the forefront. Like I wanted to like know what it was like. Um, just because you hear about all these cyber attacks and you hear about all this stuff and it's just super fascinating. And yeah. it's like everything is digital nowadays. So everything is vulnerable. And, you know, I think security is one of those most paramount things. It's like you even look at a lot of these tech layoffs, you know who they're not laying off? They're not laying off their security department. That's the last thing you want to lay off. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, that's a great point. There's a lot of job security in it. There's a lot of like it's also like super fascinating to me, like the whole idea of like knowing how to hack and being able to do stuff like that. It's just like a very 
interesting thing. And like um, when I got out of like even in college, like I um, so I started like the first year and a half of college. I, I was working at this place called Tech Help at my university. Um, so I did a lot of repairs and like I was like super technical, like I was able to do like deep malware removals and stuff like that. So that was also really interesting to me. Then I kept applying for the security. There's only like two security analyst spots in my entire university. And like I like applied for like two years to finally get it. Nice. So I did the security analyst stuff at my university for like a year and a half, um, almost two years. And I learned a lot about like identity management. Um, access controls, logs, being able to build dashboards off logs, finding interesting things like threat intelligence and um, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and then did that at my university. And then when I got out of college, um, I went and I worked at Accenture. Um, and at Accenture, I was able to do um, more web app, web application security. So being able to attack applications. So I would work for like a large telecom provider um yeah like i was gonna say they're um they're a consultant right so you would have clients that came to yep. them and said we need help here and you'd, you'd be the security guy that they brought in yep yeah wow. so basically in that in that like um so i had experience with like firewalls i had experience with um uh like actual like red teaming so like we would be be handed like internal applications that we would have to go and like break into and like find vulnerabilities and escalate privileges do things you're not allowed to do, you know, mm -hmm. um, which was really cool. Um, so I like that whole facet of like, you know, it's like it's offensive security. So that's that's really what it is. And it, I found that really fascinating. Well, you mentioned um, the work you did at Kent State. That's we went to school at Kent State. Right. Um, and I, I was looking looking at your resume and stuff. And uh, I noticed it, it doesn't say this exactly, but it, it kind of says that uh, under the Kent State cybersecurity analyst role, you sniffed network traffic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Can you tell me what does uh what does network work traffic smell like? Um, you know, it smells like a lot of data and bytes. Um, <laughs> it's a it's an interesting smell, really. Um, it smells like frying circuit boards. Yeah, uh, as I was just gonna say, when smoke is coming out of your CPU. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm also curious if you've ever um studied the DAO hack from 2016 on on Ethereum. Is that the anything you've ever looked at? Or are you talking about the actual Ethereum DAO? The hack? DAO, yeah, the one back. I can't say I did. I can't say I studied that. So I don't unfortunately have too deep of a knowledge in that. It's one of my um, favorite topics. And uh, I, I know enough to be dangerous, but um, the, what I do know is if you ever want to study a, a really elegant hack, uh, you should look at that one. Yeah, definitely. I'll take a look right after this. And then... Um, I think when you were still at Kent State, you you were um, you did well in a hackathon where you were um, talking about deep learning and AI. Yeah. So that was a while ago. Like, what do you think now? Like, can you like with that experience back then? What are you thinking now about all that stuff? Yeah, um, yeah, I find it fascinating. We're doing actually a lot of stuff in AI right now. Like a lot of our tools are right now even AI powered, um, and we're going to be releasing a whole new AI feature set next on monday actually um there's going to be a, a a big release for us we're going to be working with like llms so like there'll be a lot of stuff um and we're really trying to gear it towards security and education and onboarding specifically um so i think you know you'll well i can't really say much about it yet <laughs> but it's going to be really 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 cool and when you talk about that like ai tools are you are you meaning that you've got like a data set that you've got that it's mining for like you know uh for use or for to, to, as a tool or like 
is it like a chat GPT kind of thing where it's accessing this enormous database? The tool we're releasing is definitely like chat GPT. Um, but the tool that we're like the AI tools that we have internally use like our internal like transaction data to kind of like make assessments and then like internal like uh, we use like algorithms that are like basically like AI ML based algorithms that like um, have different like consensus mechanisms to kind of like take a look at different um, algorithms and what their outputs were make determinations based on those outputs um, and deliver like a uh, an inference like what is the inference level is it critical high medium low that type mm -hmm. of stuff okay cool and so okay so so we're at Accenture and you're like working for clients there and have you discovered crypto by this point oh yeah yeah I've been super passionate about crypto um, like I was very vocal with my team that I wanted to work in crypto um and i was trying to get into like the blockchain arm that accenture had how'd you first come across bitcoin i guess it would be right uh, 2014 um definitely like do like part of my security researching back when i was like really young just like looking around learning about like different things out there and like a lot of people were like kind of talking about bitcoin at the time um through like different forms and stuff like that um so that's where i kind of learned about bitcoin and did it make sense to you right away was it something like a big aha moment i mean i was like 15 so i had no understanding of like financials like um mm -hmm. understanding financial markets or anything um so at the time it was just like really interesting um and it just seemed like fun um like you could get bitcoin you could go on like bitcoin gambling sites and you would just make your own algorithm and try to like um game yeah, the system what's on silk road why not you know <laughs> uh, no comment um, but yeah so it's just very it's very fascinating like what you can do with things and um people were really interested in it like back in the time there was like a forum called like hack forums i believe um i don't know if it's that popular anymore but it was kind of like more of like a it's like a forum where people would like talk about security there would definitely be like black hats on there that would be talking about like their hacking tools and stuff like that so Definitely um, where I learned about a lot of stuff and like what actually goes down. And then, um, you know, there's also the whole facet of the dark web and learning about stuff there too. So you, you said um, like 2014, that's when you got introduced to Bitcoin, but it wasn't until 2017 where you really kind of dove in. What, yeah, exactly. What was it uh, in 2017 that, that really sort of grabbed you? Um, <laughs> funny enough, just like most people, like it was kind of the price um, so the price started going up. So I'm like, oh, man, people are making money with this. And then um, the other thing was that the technology was just interesting, like the whole idea of a decentralized Internet. You don't have like controlling parties. Um, the whole idea of trying to decouple assets from like the dollar, um, like 2017, like I was in college. Right. So um, it, it, honestly, like 2016, like I was interested even. But like I already knew about crypto at that time, but I just wasn't like super like into it. But 2017, like. A lot of my college friends, like including Martin, like Martin and I, and even Jacob, we're all college friends when we before we co-founded this company. So we've known each other for like seven years, and basically we all just kind of had like an interest, or well, at least Martin and I. Jacob is newer to crypto, but um, 
um, Martin and I had a lot of interest in like crypto. So we would talk about it a lot. And like, um, I think, you know, the main way that I got really onboarded and really wanted to like learn more is like through YouTube. You know, I was learning about like that. I, that's how I know that I got fully onboarded, like was through YouTube. Like I started just watching a bunch of videos and like was like, took oh, the red pill and went, yeah, took the yeah, red pill. And then um, the rabbit hole. eventually, you know, you, you know, you've made it when you're on crypto Twitter. Um, when you're on crypto Twitter, that's where you're getting all the alpha. So that's like, uh, that's like the full transition. You take the red pill, start watching a whole bunch of YouTube videos. And next thing you know, you fall down the hole even further. And then you're on crypto Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're getting blocked by half of crypto Twitter or something. <laughs> it's just a free for all out there. Um, yeah. So was it uh, the way that crypto sort of expanded with Ethereum coming kind of onto the scene and obviously in 2017, you know, there was a lot of the ICO, the ICO boom was happening. Yeah, the ICO boom was crazy. Yeah, everybody was talking about, you know, all these new decentralized applications. And, and now, the way I've always thought about it was, yeah, Bitcoin is interesting. It's, it's amazing technology, but it's limited, you know, and then you add Ethereum in. And it's like, okay, now we can do almost anything we want in the same sort of world, which I, I, that's what, to me, when I first learned about it in early 2016, that's what really sort of like made me just stand up and notice. Yeah, I think like even the idea, like decentralized finance started to get me really interested. Um, and like, there's just a whole bunch of, there's so much you could do with like crypto and like the promise of it was so heavy and that, and it still is. And that's what like really fascinated me to like really want to get involved in the space. And like, I, I know like, um, like I didn't know I wanted to work in the space until about 2020 or 2019. That's when I, when I knew that I wanted to like work in crypto specifically. What was that um, moment? Like, did, did you, and I wanted to ask you for have, you seem obviously very security conscious, but have you ever just done a like a bonehead move and and lost something when you sh you knew you shouldn't have? Um, no, not really. To be honest with you, That's I've good. been pretty careful. Um, I mean, good. knock on wood, but like i've been pretty careful but the i have definitely invested in like rugs like that's that's the thing but i've never like actually compromised my assets but i've made bad investments for sure sure yeah you know, I've, I've had folks on this show who've like they're like i've lost more bitcoin than you can even imagine <laughs> like going back even to the um do you know what a cassius coin is no it's a literal physical object it's a coin and on the back you've got your bitcoin private key so it's like, yeah, I don't know why people thought this was a good idea, but uh, I've talked to people who had those and lost them on the beach in Australia and like, you know, like it's just gone. That's <laughs> so, crazy. Yeah. But again, so yeah, back to like, was there, what was the, what was the sort of spark that made you think about WalletGuard and, and why you wanted to, with you and your co-founders to, to start the company? Yeah. So the spark that really made us want to do this is like, so Martin calls me up like it's like late December 2021. Um, we're already out of college. We're like working and he calls me up and I, I'm just like, he's just like, hey, man, there's a lot of scams in Web3. He knows that I went down the cybersecurity route where he went down the development route. Mm -hmm. And so he's basically like, you know, uh, he reached out to me because like he, he was just like, there's so many scams. And I'm like, and he knows that I had been following the space. So we took a look and we're like, I was literally, I remember like I was scrolling my Twitter feed and like 70% of my Twitter feed was just like scams, just on and on and on and on. And I'm like, this is crazy. And it's like, we can definitely do something. So he, um, he's like, yeah, let's try and do something. And, you know, 
Fast forward a few months, um, like I went on vacation and I got back and then we started working like uh, January 2022, um, starting building the product. Um, and we just like, you know, the product we released was super shit when it first came out, but then we started iterating so fast, like um, really trying to build the best user experience pops possible. And we did a lot of like crash course and like learning and like about how to find or found a company and like what you need to do. And like a lot of that education through Y Combinator um, that's available on their YouTube, their articles and everything. So like we learned a lot from like Y Combinator videos and uh, we were just like following the whole idea of listening to your customers and trying to build for what they need and build like build ask your customers what they need um, and build for it. So that's kind of the approach we took. I mean, um, and, you know, we've been iterating ever since and finally came to a um, point where um, we were able to get investment from like Ethereal Ventures, Consensus, IOSG. We ended up partnering uh, with MetaMask and Chainalysis. Um, so it was like a, it was definitely a huge journey. Are you working with um, Taylor Monahan over at MetaMask? Yeah, of yeah, course. Taylor's awesome. I love her. She's a friend of of Decential. Yeah, she's one of the best people in all of crypto, in my opinion. Hundred percent agree. So what's you you sort of alluded to it earlier in our conversation that the weakest link in any security protocol is the individual user, and then you you tie that into how crypto, as we've we talked about, also is you're only a couple clicks away from losing everything. Um, what you guys are doing is great. And I think it's a step in the right direction, but in the bigger picture, where are we in that in terms of um, making sure that people who already know what they're doing are safe, but then the people who don't know what they're doing, who are coming into this for the first time can feel a lot more confident that, you know, because it is a big responsibility that they can have the tools like to, to, to keep themselves from doing something stupid. Like, where do you think we are in, in that, in the bigger picture? We're still early to be quite honest with you. I know it's a taboo thing to say, but we are still early. The fact that we're just now building security rails and usability layers for web three means that we are extremely early and we are prepping for adoption. That is where I think we are. Um, Drives me crazy that security is like the last thing that people think about. Oh my God, same. Move fast and break things mentality that just really doesn't work in this space at all. Yeah. I mean, you could even say it does though. Like you could see how like Ethereum, like Ethereum was a move fast type play. Um, so I, I guess, you know, there there are definitely times to move fast and there are definitely times to move slow and be critical, right? And the fact that security concerns weren't thought about until so late, like, you know, people thought about it from the contractual level, but they never thought about it from the usability level, from the end user perspective. They thought about it because like the security rails that were developed were developed for like super technical people, right? But they weren't developed for like the average Joe. Yeah, I agree with you, but I would say like Ethereum as a layer one is very secure and and has never really, uh, it's never gone down. Some of their clients have been attacked and they go down, but I think as a layer one, they did a really good job there. But the, the problem is that then you open that layer one up to everyone who can build on top of it. And that's where you get the dApps that just don't have any, you know, they're not thinking security. Like the Dow. Oh, 100% you know, agree. I mentioned they, they had $150 million in their treasury. And it had already been pointed out publicly that they had dozens, you know, a good dozen serious flaws. And they, you know, they didn't shut it down. And then, you know, you see what happens with the hack. And there's a like a million other examples of that. So that, that's all the point that I was trying to make. 
Yeah, 100% agree with you. Ethereum is super secure by like that measure alone. But that's what I mean. Like, um, that we, we, like they built a, from a technical perspective, a very secure system. But from an end user perspective, like the usability of it wasn't, wasn't thought about. And I think that's what we're just now starting to address. And I'm super excited for that because that means we're prepping for adoption. We're prepping for people to come into the space and really uh, basically like the fav- my favorite example of like what we're building is we're trying to build like an ATM interface for like how you interact. So we want you to know like simply what's going in and out of your wallet before you transact rather than looking at a, uh, a message like a hashed message or a bunch of byte code. Like that's not that's not what we need for an end user. We need something that's simple, something that's human readable, a clean interface yeah. that allows people to transact confidently. Yeah, I agree. I think that's where the conflict has been because this is a decentralized universe, right? And so you're you don't have a centralized um, service that can maybe be convenient for you because that's not part of what we're talking about. So then the onus is on the individual and that's where it gets tough because, you know, to have decentralization means you need to take on a lot of responsibility that you don't take on when you're dealing with your bank who's giving you FDIC insurance or whatever it happens to be. But um, I think the interface like you just mentioned and like the ATM example is really good because that I think it is still really foreign to a lot of people to see a hat like a a string of 64 random characters that's your you know wallet address and you're like holy shit what do I do with that you know (laughs) that is not something that that most people are used to dealing with when they're interacting with like their money or commerce so I think anything that can improve that interface and improve that sort of experience is, is going to go a long way. So it's, that's great that you guys are doing it. Like the mass adoption question, where do you, do you think that's what's maybe going to bring things out of this, this bear market or are we a, a cycle or two away from that still? No. So I think <clears throat> we're probably, we're closer than we think. Um, a lot of big brands are coming into web three, but Again, it comes down to the usability aspect. Like we need to make it super usable for everybody to get in, right? A lot of the people that were in early were like very technical folk, people that had a real deep technical expertise or very tech savvy expertise. And now the people that are coming in are artists, are musicians, are folks that don't always have the deepest technical expertise. Definitely a lot of them, I'm sure a lot of them do, but some of them don't. And that's the that's the people we're building for right now. We're building for the people that don't necessarily have too much technical knowledge, but want to be involved in this whole movement of crypto and decentralization. So we need to make it easy enough for them to interact with so that they can be part of this ecosystem and bring a fresh new wave of color to really what we're doing. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I was going to make that point because I think when like the NFT craze like opened up this world to first it was like digital artists and a lot of those folks were pretty tech savvy because they might have been doing things, you know, um, via computer for a while and they knew how to program. And so that was a sort of a not a big leap but then now it's expanding to musicians and i think that's where there's there's been a lot of resistance that we've been writing about um on decentral about first of all you know like nft is sort of a bad word in a lot of places and people have gotten ripped off and they they only see the the brugging and the and the bad actors out there um and then it's also i think there's just not a lot of um understanding yet of like what an nft can do for a musician um or uh, for a a web3 like savvy music label but the ideas are all out there and they're really great it's just it's a bummer that there's not um a lot of 
things you can point to at this point that are really like sort of concrete. But I think like music, I was just writing about this today in our newsletter. It's, it's a dirty business, man. It is like, it's so in need of disruption. The, the amount of control that either like, like Live Nation has over like bands that tour or record labels have over the artists that they, you know, distribute. It's, it's like criminal, like bands, yeah. when they'll sell hundreds of thousands of tickets on a national tour, they won't get any data on any of those people who bought tickets. Like they're not allowed, like that's a third party middleman who's like sitting on that because if a band had that information about its fans, it could start having a direct relationship with them. And then all these middlemen are cut out, you know, which is the dream of web three. And so I think that's why it's a huge issue, but there's also just like so many hills to climb in that world. Um, but I think, I think it's starting. Yeah. Funny enough. So like my uncle, so like I'm pretty in tune with like the music industry. Um, my, my uncle um, actually works at like a record label and like worked at a company called like Live Mixtapes and it still works there. But basically they were like a streaming platform before like Spotify was around and they would allow like mixtapes like back when uh, Future dropped his album or 2 Chains they dropped their album or like their mixtapes back then. So like the music industry is very like from when he explained to me is it's extremely cutthroat and they they don't care. Um, a lot of these big labels, what they'll do is just take 10,000 and go to a neighborhood and just throw 10,000 at every local rapper or a local musician. And if one of them hits, now they're in a contractual obligation because they received a small sum of money. Yeah. Yeah, the contracts are notoriously um, awful and uh the touring is getting even harder now and, and so and streaming has totally decimated record sales so it's just it's a uh, it's pretty bleak but i think that's fueling a lot of um the music you know musicians and bands and and more tech focused labels to to try to make something uh make an alternative for that yeah i really see like the future of music and nfts um and this is just my personal opinion but i really see that um the future of it is really going to be around loyalty based like it's it's about your fans right and this is like a whole new way to engage with your fans and provide different experiences that weren't possible before yeah i mean imagine having um a concert venue where you could scan you know your wallet and based on the nfts you have you're like front row you know like like that i don't see that as being that far-fetched or even like how many times you visit if you've went to like multiple concerts maybe you're going to start getting discounted rates on more concerts or you might get discounted rates on merch or stuff like that it's like the web3 music loyalty program i feel like yeah. it's kind of the future of like how music nfts will progress like i think selling music as nfts is pretty cool and like fractionalizing it but i think you know there's a lot of constraints to that as well but i think the whole loyalty aspect of it and like creating the fan base and the community i think that's the valuable part yeah, I agree. It's going to definitely um, allow bands and to interact with their fans in a direct manner rather than through a record label and their marketing department. You know, and I think that's going to be a huge shift. Well, hey, uh, that's a great note uh, to leave this on. Om, uh, thank you so much for all your time and, and insight and sharing your story with us. Um, I think it's amazing what you're doing at WalletGuard. Congrats to you and your co-founders. Um, why don't you tell people how First of all, how they can get WalletGuard on their browser and then how they can find you guys if they want more information. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the best way to get WalletGuard on your browser is to go to WalletGuard.app. 
and then you can click the install button there and it'll take you to the Chrome store page where you can download the extension. Um, the main thing about WalletGuard is that what we're really building is a security engine that can power multiple things, right? So the, the Chrome extension is our consumer facing product, you know, but in the future we'll have a lot more products that are based off of the same security engine that we're really excited about. Um, but again, thank you so much for this call, Matt. Um, this uh, podcast has been fantastic. I've had a pleasure talking with you. Um, and yeah, anybody who's interested in finding more about us, uh, feel free to check us out on Twitter. Twitter, it's at wallet underscore guard. Um, and otherwise, you can go to our website and that's walletguard.app. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. And I am going to do that right after we get off here. I'm going to I'm going to install that extension. Uh, I don't do a lot, but I, I am. I know myself and I'm capable of doing something stupid. So hopefully you guys can stop me from it. <laughs> of course. Well, let me know if you ever have any questions. Take care. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Om. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon music. Decent people is a production of Decentral media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. Mm-hmm.